0: What's your favorite voice? Oh, sure. I could do one for you. I'll do Big Sue. You can talk to Big Sue. So ask me anything you want. So, uh, Big Sue, what are you doing the rest of today? I'm actually going outside. I got—I have a big i have a big flat tire on my car. I ran over a nail. So I got to go rip that off my teeth. I'm going to get out there right now. It's the, your teeth are the strongest bone in your body.
1: So I run a women's empowerment organization. Beautiful. So it's all about kind of lifting up women. Uh-huh. What do you think of that?
0: You got to use your knees. Don't use your back. It really hurts to lift a woman with your back. You will break it. Oh, yeah, don't use your back. Best advice I have. Welcome to Tilted, a
1: Lean In podcast. Tilted brings you conversations at the intersection of gender and culture. We dig into topics we're curious about, highlight people and stories that inspire us and we hope inspire you too, and share expert advice to help you make the playing field a little less tilted. I'm your host, Rachel Thomas, co-founder and CEO of Lean In. With everything 2020 has thrown at us, we could all use a good laugh. So today on Tilted, we're talking to two women who are experts at using humor to highlight issues that matter, challenge stereotypes, and just make it through crappy days. And these ladies have a lot to say. First off, I spoke to actor, voice artist, and improv comedian Lauren Lapkus. She's the host of the popular podcast with special guest Lauren Lapkus and currently stars in the Netflix comedy, The Wrong Missy. You probably know her from Orange is the New Black and HBO's Crashing 2. As you'll hear, her passion for comedy started really early and she uses it in every area of her life and has lots of advice for how you can use comedy too. So I guess my first question is there aren't that many women who work in comedy How'd you get bit by the bug?
0: Oh, my God. I feel like that was just what I was meant to do from my whole life. I, in elementary school, was really obsessed with Saturday Night Live. And that was how I really started to feel like, oh, I really want to be a comedian. But it is interesting that you say that because I feel like so many of my influences were men. I just loved Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and David Spade and all those guys. That was what I looked to. I was like, oh, I want to be like them. So as I got older, I found, like, women that I was emulating myself after. The first thing I did was children's theater. That was the way that I got started really. And there was like a local children's theater that we had in my town where everyone could audition. And I really just got small bit parts where sometimes I got to improvise as the character. I was in like Beauty and the Beast as Mother Wolf, which is not a character (laughs) in Beauty and the Beast, but got to like do improv in my little moments in the play. And I just loved getting laughs. I mean, really, was like that kind of thing of being on stage and having people laugh. And it just felt so good. And I was always kind of a class clown, too. So it kind of just formed that way and started doing improv in high school after not getting into like any plays at school. I would audition for every single play. And my school just had a lot of very talented actors. And I think I was not one of them. So my teacher just like suggested that I take classes at Improv Olympic in Chicago. And that's how I really got Into where I am now.
1: There's like a concept in research, the lonely only. Mm, Tell me more. So it's, you know, you're the only woman in the room, Mm -hmm. the only woman on the set, you get the gist. Yeah, yeah. Has that been a big part of your experience?
0: On some level, yeah. I mean, like in improv, especially when I was starting, there were way fewer women involved. So almost every improv team that I would be on, I'd be the only girl or one of two. And for a long time I didn't mind that. I have to say. I think part of it is because comedy like I felt growing up like it was like a boys' club. I wanted to be part of the boys' club, getting to be in that and be like, I'm the funny girl. So there's something that felt kind of cool it's, about yeah, it. Yeah, nothing wrong with
1: that. That's yeah. cool. Yeah.
0: But I mean, I have to say, like, as that has changed and now the landscape of improv is so different, there are so many more women doing it now. And I have like an all-female team. I value that and love it so much. And I don't think about it anymore. But I think being younger there was like some element of oh i got into the cool thing you know but i'm grateful now that there are so many women involved because it just feels more like a space for us we share vulnerable stuff we share secrets we embarrass ourselves it's the kind of stuff that i feel like can only happen in like a safe group of women it just feels so secure and like we're holding each other you know it feels like something that wouldn't be able to happen with just like a you know, an old group of a bunch of guys and one girl or something. There's just like that difference of seeing each other on a certain level.
1: You were on Orange is the New
0: Black. And so
1: anyone listening who knows you will want to hear about that experience, what it was like.
0: Oh, it was so cool. And it was, I mean, it was mostly women. So that was kind of amazing and also intimidating. I think like coming into a set where there's 50 strong, cool women standing around, it's like you just don't get that experience very often in life. I was definitely nervous about it. I think I've grown a lot in the time since that show started. That was one of my first big jobs. So there's already the element of I don't really know what I'm doing on a set in general. But then working with all these women where I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so inspired and like intimidated by them. They're just like strong, cool people who know who they are. And I don't know if I necessarily felt that completely for myself at that time. So it was kind of crazy to be around these people and be like kind of taking them in. Just it was a lot. It was empowering. But kind of like whoa so for people who've never done it
1: what are one or two of the core principles of improv where you're like everybody should know this
0: yeah the main things are yes and which means if you say something in the scene i'm going to support it and add something what it also means it's not just saying yes to what you're saying it's saying yes to the reality of what you've established so if you're like this bar is really great and i'm like we're in a library, then I'm like, or I'm negating it and not helping. <laughs> but if you say like, this bar is really great. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually too loud. I'm still agreeing with you because I'm establishing that same reality, but I'm like having a different opinion. So it doesn't have to literally mean you're just agreeing with people. But I think it works in real life. That I can agree with the reality that you're talking about and have a different opinion than you. And we can still have a nice conversation and keep it going. And then the other one I think that's really important is don't think, which really is just don't filter yourself don't judge yourself don't be outside of yourself looking at yourself going like you're dumb <laughs> which I think is so easy to do in life I'm like why did you say that thing or why are you doing that if you do that in the scene you lose track of what the person just said and now you have no idea what's going on and you really can't add to it if you're thinking like oh I'm such an idiot I shouldn't have said that thing one of the things I was
1: so struck by when I was looking at a lot of your work is you make up so many characters on the fly yeah, like all the time. Do you have a favorite or? Yeah, anyone really? Kind of, you have an attachment to?
0: I do. I have like a few that I've done. So I do characters on my own podcast, but also on Comedy Bang Bang. And it's a podcast where Scott Ackerman interviews comedians in character. Like, so we're all on as different characters. And sometimes they recur. So people start to get attached to certain characters that come on the show. And that is kind of where a lot of the characters that I care about, it comes from that feeling of, like, the audience caring about them and wanting to hear them again. So I have a a middle schooler named Todd who's one of my characters, and he's someone that I love to play because so many of my characters are really just fully, like, my it coming through. I can say the nastiest or worst or craziest thing or most offensive thing or just whatever I want, and there's no repercussions, so it's really fun.
1: Do you think about stereotypes about women or how we see women when you're constructing these characters?
0: So many of my characters are inspired by people that I see on either like reality TV or around town that I'm kind of repulsed by, but also like attracted to (laughs) like, it's like this sort of push and pull of, I like to look for like the worst thing in people, but also like have fun with that. Man or woman, like it doesn't necessarily matter, but I think a lot of my characters have bad personality so I don't, I don't want to say that it's a commentary on how well, i view well, yes, women course, but like yeah. it's how i view like a lot of society of just like well, there's a lot of dark creatures coming through all the time that we're just kind of pretending aren't there or we just accept as who they are and just go okay so you can be like that i would never want to be that person but that person walks around all day and the world revolves around them and what's that like for them so
1: that's super interesting um <laughs> What's funny is you said earlier that it was a little bit of your id,
0: so is it cathartic
1: for you to kind of play these over-the-top, sometimes awful characters?
0: Yes, it's so fun. I feel like learning improv, one of the main things that you learn in Upright Citizens Brigade, one of the theaters that I perform at, the motto is don't think. And so you spend all of your time kind of learning how to check out of your brain and use a different part of your brain so that you're not judging yourself during the scene or like stopping yourself or filtering or trying to think about too many things at once. You want to just be in the moment. And What I love about doing these characters is that I'm really not thinking about anything. I'm just (laughs) tapping into something else and letting that flow. So it feels great. I think after shows, I feel really tired and I have no idea what I said for the most part.
1: A lot of your characters are a bit over the top. Some are a little less likable, like a little stereotyped. (laughs) Can you kind of talk through that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I truly love playing people that you hate. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fun. There is just something so fun about being... The worst person in the room. I mean, I watch so much reality TV. I love that stuff. And a lot of those people are really unlikable, at least in how they're portrayed on the show and how it's edited. And we love to hate them. Real housewives. Whenever I've gotten to meet a few of them and I, I'm i bowing down, like I love them. But on the show, they're often portrayed as like villains and like crazy people. And they're screaming at each other and they're as drunk as they've ever been. And that's something I've never done in my life. I've never gotten wasted and screamed at my friend. I would never. But it sounds kind of liberating, <laughs> like... I don't want to hate anyone in my life enough to scream at them that much, but I've thought about how fun it would be to create a show with a few of my close friends where that's how we act to each other. Like, we just talk to each other like we're real housewives. Your shirt is hideous and your hair is ugly. Like, you look awful. Like, you would never say that to your friend, but like being a character who can say that, it's very free. You can go anywhere. So, I really enjoy playing the gross people. Is there any social
1: commentary in that for you?
0: I mean, I think there is just inherently, like, because I'm pulling from so much stuff that I've witnessed and just like my. Point of view of the world. Yeah, I think there's a lot built in there that I don't consciously think of, but I'm disturbed by like everything. (laughs) So watching TV and not to get political because I don't want to, but Watching that stuff, it's like just everyone in the background of the State of the Union, like everyone there. I'm like fascinated by these people and like what's going on in their minds and who they are. And I like to just pull the worst part of someone and make that the focus. So I think a lot of my characters are really just the worst part amplified.
1: One of the other things that you've talked about a little bit that I was struck by is this idea of punching up versus punching down. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's much more fun to punch up than it is to punch down. It feels bad. I think the times when I feel like made the mistake of punching down, I really regret it. Anytime I've made fun of somebody who is in a lesser position or it's about something that they can't control, I feel guilty about it. And I'm thinking of things now that I've said that I'm like, why did I say that? That wasn't cool. Like, that's just not worth it. But punching up is the most fun because those people deserve it. (laughs) And do you learn? So first of all, can you explain to people just what punching up and punching down is? Yeah. So punching up would be like making a joke about someone in power where I have less control than they do or I have less power than they do. So it's like my attempt to bring them down a little bit, just like humble them. Punching down would be like making fun of a sick kid or something where it's like, well, they don't deserve that. They didn't do anything to deserve being made fun of or to deserve a joke against them.
1: One of the things you've talked about a little bit, I've read some of your interviews, is how powerful you feel when you're being funny.
0: Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I feel like I didn't know I said that. So that's cool. (laughs) But yeah, I do feel that way. I feel like it gives you this feeling of, oh, I can do anything. Going on stage and especially coming out with nothing and doing Comedy Bang Bang, sitting there backstage and thinking like, I have no idea what I'm going to say or what I'm about to do. It's a little scary, but it's also really exciting because then when you come out, and there's the feeling of, oh, I figured it out. It worked. Whatever we said made sense. And like people enjoyed it and they were laughing. It gives you a rush. It does feel amazing.
1: Do you use your improv skills in your everyday life? Are you like so glad you can do this?
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so great. Honestly, like I feel like people should try it just as a one level thing of, as a way to like get out of your head. It's not for everyone. I'm not saying like everyone should be an improviser, but it's a great tool because it helped me so much with like staying in the moment, listening to people, Reacting to what they said and not just what I want to say next, trying to stay on task in the moment and just following things through. It's also just great to stop judging yourself and try to get out of your own way. I think that's helped me so much with that. Do
1: you employ humor in the moment to get out of situations you oh, don't want to be yes, in? Yes, like, all the time. Tell oh people to like, screw you, but with a smile on your face. Oh like, yeah, yes. it's the best. That's how I've gotten through my whole
0: life. <laughs> I mean, like, right, <laughs> tell It's tell like all more. I have, okay? <laughs> I've like relied on this tool. This is like my best muscle. And I use it all the time. There's like so many situations as a woman where you're talking to some weird driver in your Uber who's making you uncomfortable or whatever. And you kind of like shut it down pretty quickly. I mean, without being rude. I think we have all these moments in our lives. I would just speaking as a woman, I can't speak for all women, but like that feeling of, okay, this is uncomfortable. I'm in this situation that I would rather not be in. I don't really know how to get out of it. I don't know if it's going to turn on me or something bad might happen here if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. So how can I soften this moment and make myself more comfortable?
1: So you probably know this, but there's a fair amount of research that shows that humor can be a really good tool in the workplace or in Mm -hmm. difficult situations, but can be a little bit of a double-edged sword for women. If you do it right, it's cool and it hits. If you do it wrong, people kind of don't like you or they roll their eyes. Absolutely. Any advice for people listening, given this is what you do and how do you use humor?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really helpful, definitely in situations that are uncomfortable or if you have an awkward moment with somebody, you can lighten that moment. And that's really nice. I've had moments where it just doesn't work, or you know, if you don't know the person and they don't get that you're joking. So, (laughs) I've had moments in work environments where, like, you know, you make a joke and then someone's hmm, and they're like, "Oh, what?" But then you like miss the moment to explain that you were kidding, and then you're like, "Oh, I think they might think that I mean or something," or like they just didn't get what I was doing there, and there's no way to fix it. So, there are moments where. can like sort of bite you but i think ultimately it's my favorite thing because i think socially like i still feel like i have social anxiety but i definitely have had it worse in past years using that as just a way to cut through that it just really helps me I don't know but it's not something you can teach so I mean it's not something for everybody you know it's not great advice to just say like well but just be funny and work through it some people are just so like fair. yeah you some know? people are not funny no yeah. and that's okay and maybe that person's like super sweet and that's how they get through everything and I'm like I, that's great too there are so many ways that we all armor ourselves to like get through things Maybe just something to keep in mind is, like, not to take everything so seriously. Like, if you're in a work environment where, like, your natural reaction is, like, get pissed at someone, like, maybe just stop for a second and be like, huh, like, what's another way I could react? The more you do that, the more natural it becomes. I have a few people in my life who I know who are really quick to anger, and it's like, wait, just, like, wait for one second. Take that millisecond to make a different choice, because that's something that improv teaches you. While it's don't think, at the same time, it's also... What's the best choice right now? Your brain quickly filters through five things. And you're like, what's the most effective thing that will like amplify this moment and make it better? And that works in life. You know,
1: that is a jewel. Because I do think if you can give yourself the moment to do that, even if it's not funny, whatever yeah, you yeah. say next— will be better. And if it's not the expected response, that's probably pretty disarming in a good way to the person who just said it. So one of the things she said when you were talking about Orange is the New Black is I didn't have the confidence then. I'm paraphrasing you, which means you're feeling a lot more confident
0: now. Yes. Yes. I mean, I do feel like I've grown so much in that time. So much of it, I think, comes from experience, like getting to be on more sets and have the life experience to get through stuff. But I've also had like big life moments. Like I got divorced. I got remarried. I've had like big things happen in my life that hadn't happened at that time. And that kind of thing makes you take stock of who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Having to make the decision to get divorced is such a big decision. Huge. Like, wow.
1: Yeah. You're huge just decision. you're thinking
0: like, OK, my whole life can change if I decide to change it. And that's so empowering. It feels kind of amazing to make that choice for yourself. And I think doing that, while it was very difficult and emotional and everything that comes with that, it also propelled me to follow my gut more, and like I think that's given me so much confidence in my life.
1: I love that. You talked about wanting to do this since you were little, or wanting mm-hmm. to be funny. Would your
0: young self ever imagine where you've gotten? Honestly. I think I want to say no, but then the answer is yes, because I always thought that's what would happen. (laughs) Like I saw myself on TV. like I was like, that's what I want. I think the humble part of me wants to be like, God, I've never dreamed or whatever. But I'm actually like, yeah, it's exactly what I dreamed. It was like what I hoped for. I was sitting in my high school going like, I can't wait to get out here and move to New York and be on TV. And then I was like, I got to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess the answer is yes. You mentioned not getting into a lot of the school plays and stuff. Was there a moment in there where you were like, this is never going to happen?
0: No, I always thought that I would be good at this. I just thought that somehow it wasn't working in this situation. Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) I've actually never even like thought of it. You know, I guess I've never had the honest answer to that question. That's the most honest answer because I was there going like, I'm not getting any of these plays. What's wrong with these people? Why aren't they putting me in the play? I, (laughs) I should be in the play. Are you kidding? I'd be great in the play. And then like, I'd just be crying about it and be like, well, I guess I'll audition for the next play. And then I didn't get in the next play. I'm like- I should really be in the play. <laughs> so it just was that feeling once I had one teacher who really saw that in me, I think that was the game-changing moment. His name's Aaron Carney. I've always feel like I have to say his name because he really did give me like the exact push I needed. He put me in the right place. He was like go do this improv thing. That's what you should do. It's not to say like I shouldn't have been in Midsummer Night's Dream. Like I probably wasn't doing a good job at that, but it was what was presented to me as an option. So once I was given like another option of like this is a, probably a more specific field for you where like you'll actually do well. Like that was everything because I still had the confidence, but I was putting it into the right category. I think it's amazing you had the confidence to all of that, though. I don't know why. I don't know. Good <laughs> parents or something. I don't know.
1: Hey, tilted listeners! Before we hear from our next guest, I want to let you know about something new we're trying. For our final episode of the season, we want to hear from you give us a call at 855-4-TILTED. That's 855-484-5833. And leave a 30-second voicemail telling us how you plan to make the world a little less tilted in 2021. We'll share the messages that inspire us most, and we may even follow up with you to learn more. Again, that's 855-4-TILTED to record your message. We can't wait to hear from you. Now let's dive back into this week's episode. Next up, I sat down with stand up comic Cameron Esposito. Cameron's known for using comedy for social commentary, including rape jokes, her special about sexual assault from a survivor's perspective. She's currently the host of the podcast Query and recently released a memoir titled Save Yourself. I've been talking to a lot of people who've written books recently, which has really gotten me to think about how important titles are. You obviously put a ton of thought into the book, and it's called Save Yourself. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so it has a lovely double
2: entendre. I was literally saving myself for marriage as a young, devout Catholic, and also the way that stand-up... Factors into my life? Is this yeah, a factors sentence? into your life. That's the a The way that stand-up up works in my life and the decisions that I made outside of the church really were to save myself. I was raised very Catholic, didn't know gay people were real, went to Catholic school my, my whole life through college, and also attended a Catholic school for college where you could be kicked out for being gay, even though wow. I never saw that happen to anybody, it was Part of their official policy. And so that's where I was realizing I was gay. Also, the week I graduated from college is the week Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. So I went from a situation where I really thought I was going to hell or I thought I had to stay closeted forever to standing with my then-girlfriend, watching the first couples emerge with their hands held above their heads as they were married and getting out of City Hall. I wrote the book because— I think that we talk about religious conservatism as if it is something in the very distant past or as if it is something that people who are on the fringes of society grow up in. I think we still don't talk about how it affects the queer community. And I think we also don't talk specifically about how Catholicism affects the queer community. Some folks maybe would think of Catholicism as sort of a mainstream religion because there are Catholic colleges that have good football teams. But (laughs) for me... It was a pretty damaging way to grow up. I had crossed eyes when I was a little kid. I was queer growing up in the suburbs. Nobody that I knew was openly gay. I had no idea what was going on with me. I just knew that I had a bowl cut and I wanted to be Robin Hood for like most Halloweens. And so I just was like sort of an oddball. And I think that to survive, to like thrive and have friends, I um, overdeveloped humor, which is a coping mechanism sure. that we all use. And for me, that was just a great way of getting ahead of somebody else making the jokes about me. I'm like, you think I don't know that I have an eye patch? I definitely know. And in fact, here's another observation.
1: Yeah, My son is very short. There are lots of worse things than being very short. He prides himself on being very funny. I think he is, but I might be incredibly biased. But when he was in the third or fourth grade, to your point, like he came home and was mom and dad. I get made fun for being short so often, so I've come up with better short jokes. That's great. Like, you know, like, he would, like, double... He was like, that's all you got? I read a bunch of your interviews, and one of the things you say, which makes a lot of sense to me, is a lot of the people that you think are the funniest comedians clearly grew up the oddball using your language or being discriminated against, and so they just kind of keep sharpening that humor, sharpening that humor. Is there, like, a point on your journey where it probably moved from defense a little bit? I don't want to put words to, to like, offense.
2: Yeah, I think that there were a lot of times growing up that I felt powerless and I think it is a place where I feel powerful and I think that's important for human development to find places where we feel powerful feel strong you know the reason that it's true in comedy is because in order to be funny you really have to indicate to the audience like I've got this because we don't actually want to laugh at somebody we want to laugh with somebody so it really it's is such about a good distinction making an audience relax and calm down and I love that and I also love the challenge of that you know it changes your body chemistry like you're literally on drugs when you're on stage because you're being flooded with so much adrenaline and there's a really beautiful and exciting part of that that really works for me
1: there aren't a lot of women who do what you do looks like it's getting better but how has that journey been especially in like kind of lonely onlys mm-hmm. is that an experience that you've had absolutely i started
2: doing improv in boston right after i graduated from college i got my first job I was one of very few women doing it professionally at that time there. There were some others, but still a minority group. And then I moved to Chicago and I went from I'm part of a minority group to there were two other women in my class doing stand-up at the time. So like stand-up sort of runs like classes where like the people you start with. And there were maybe there were 50 to 100 men. Then in other classes, there were a couple more women. So maybe overall, it's a scene of 200 men and 20 or 15 women. I was also the only gay person. Uh, There was one other gay dude, but I was the only lesbian, and, you know, the the gay guy was several years older than me. And I would never be booked on a show with the other gay guy or with another woman because the booker's idea was to spread us out. I'm sure anybody, a woman that works in many jobs in male-dominated fields, knows this. Yep. Experience. So, well, actually, I could tell you what I specifically did during that time is I started a stand-up class for women. It still runs in Chicago. It's called the Feminine comique And you can amazing. take it. I trained 200 women to do stand-up and there are hundreds more have taken the class since that time. And it really was because what I felt was happening was that women didn't feel comfortable getting to an open mic. When we think about why is there this difference, it's not like at the stage of who's funny or who should be booked or who should get a million-dollar contract, it really seemed to me to be at the stage of getting started. And, you know, women are not cultured to be funny, as we've been talking about earlier. Women are not cultured to literally stand and be looked at. We're not cultured to be beheld, except if we're sexualized. We're not cultured to think that we should say a sentence full stop. I had only one rule in this class, which is that if you apologized for the joke that you were about to say, you just had to go sit down and then come back up <laughs> and start hard? again.
1: Was that hard for the women going through it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But like you weren't punished. That. You didn't right. lose it. Right. No, time. No, I get it. It, but it you made you self-aware that you would just apologize thing. for yourself. Yes. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I tell this whole story because I think it applies a lot of different places is that we're not at the higher levels often because we're not at the lower levels. And when we are at the lower levels, we're not given the training to get to the middle levels. And so it really is about shoring up the skill set that men come in with. You know, men are taught when they're children, if you have something to say, say it. We oftentimes are not.
1: Yeah, or say it but not too loud.
2: Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. Specifically as a queer person, I felt pretty unsafe coming out in the situation that I described earlier and I think it was a way to try to increase my safety by, like, coming out to the biggest number of people the most public way possible. Because you don't just come out one time. You kind of come out over and over again to, like, every member of your family, the bagel salesman, in small ways. You know, people are like, oh, you bring that home to your boyfriend and you have to decide, am I going to lie to this random stranger or am I going to come out? I'm on the plane. The random person next to me wants to talk to me. They're asking about who I'm going to see. And I just think for me, the easiest hurdle early on was to just be like kind of famously gay (laughs) because it just took the pressure off.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fair to say like you are consciously working to tackle tough issues at times or at least issues that resonate with you with humor? Is that like something you're actively doing? I think it's just what I'm interested in.
2: I know some people are doing a different thing. Sometimes I look at a comic who's just like, Fucking around and telling jokes about spaghetti or something, and I'm like, amazing. Sometimes I wish I could be that. When we watch TV, most television shows are written from that perspective based on who's in the writer's room, who created that show. When we watch a comic, most comics fall into that demographic. So if they're talking about sex, they are talking about it from the perspective of a straight. Heterosexual white cisgender dude. That perspective is all over that, and I think if you fall anywhere outside of that, we are told that our perspectives are niche. You're talking about being gay all the time, and it's like, well, because that's the only yeah, thing I know. Like, I actually can't talk about being straight. And by the way, that straight guy is talking about being straight all the time. You just don't see it. Or somebody's a person of color, similar thing. Or if they're a trans person, similar thing. So I got a lot of feedback throughout my career that I talk about being gay a lot. I'm like no shit i'm gay all the time in every experience
1: (laughs) so it's it's a lens it is a lens and And you're right the pervasive lens is the white straight cisgender dudes lens and so we don't even realize that we're so steeped in it yes for
2: instance a stereotype is that women have jokes about their periods yeah we do because that is a thing that happens to us and men talk about things that happen to them and also i'll say here not all women have periods and not all men don't have periods. But anyway, I think that that was something when I was teaching the class that I was very much aware of is that not only are women like not cultured to get up on stage, but we also don't think that our topics are funny because men are not taught that they should try to view something from another person's perspective. And we are right.
1: We Such grow a good up point.
2: watching men's stuff and thinking that that's universal. Men don't have that same challenge. And by the way, I will say the same thing for white people. We are very much totally agree that Strong our agree. experience is universal, and it is not.
1: How do you go about tackling tough stuff with humor? Like, do you have a process? Do you have, like, a goal? How do you think about it? I'm endlessly fascinated by how you do this.
2: <laughs> well, I sort of goes by, like, the topic of the hour that you're building stand-up works in you work on an hour and then you're trying to record that and distribute it either as a special or as an album for me that's really what it has been recently first i wanted to talk about being sexy and dating and that became a stand up album that's called um, same sex symbol and then i wanted to talk about getting married and that was called marriage material and then i wanted to talk about sexual assault and that was called rape jokes and now i'm working on an hour about getting divorced (laughs) which is called separately and like for me it's just what are all my thoughts and what's the biggest thing going on in my life right
1: now you did a special in the wake of the me too movement called rape jokes which is another name you thought about a lot and one that really hit me because I mean sexual assault rape its not funny but you're using jokes and you're juxtaposing rape and jokes in the title of the performance talk me through that yeah first of all anything is funny sexual assault can be funny I think that anything
2: is funny but what so often happens is that comics get a lot of they get a lot of shit when The subject matter is not dealt with appropriately to how taboo it is or how much it actually affects real people. So you can talk about any topic. You just have to know that there are people in the audience that that affects and you have to treat it with respect. And something like sexual assault, I feel like rape jokes, that's like a phrase that people use to talk about usually like low hanging fruit jokes, like jokes that are just the obvious crappy like the survivor of assault is the punchline or the concept of rape is the punchline and i think if you move assault anything that's that taboo into the premise like i'm not the punchline in that hour. But the premise is that I was assaulted in college. And here's what I think about that. And it is very hard to have the president that we have in the White House and wake up every morning and hear from him or see his face knowing about his history. And that's really why I thought to make this special to begin with was because I wanted it to be the number one Google search result when you put in rape jokes. I didn't want it to be like some crappy defense of a joke that didn't need to be told to begin with, but really something that is powerful and honest and from the perspective of a survivor.
1: You you had me really laughing and about some tough stuff. You had me laughing on kind of talking about some fearfulness you have of men and the way you did that was really funny. Then you tell your personal story, which isn't funny And it's very heartbreaking and very beautifully told. And then you just like hit us with a joke, like a punch. I
2: knew that I wanted there to be a part of the hour of material where it was quiet, where there was some sitting with the actual story. That was really tough for me, actually. I will say I think it could have even been longer, but that was kind of the amount that I could deal with just as a human because it is really vulnerable to say this truth and then just stand in it especially as a comic the way that we relate to an audience is through laughs i'm more okay with like a little bit of a pause than maybe even some comics are but a pause and then people are really seeing you and like registering what's going on that was tough and deliberately placed also like happens about 45 or 50 yeah, minutes say in. I was
1: just it's deep in. Mm-hmm.
2: I also wanted people to be laughing and to be lighthearted and then to know that, yeah, it's okay to take things seriously, too. And I'm, I mean, I'm actually really proud of where that fell and that also then we got out of it together with the audience. I mean, as a person, that was important to me because I knew there would be other survivors in the audience. I didn't want to leave everybody feeling maybe chewed up and spit out. But then also as a comic... <laughs> It was a wonderful challenge
1: to bring people back from a full stop. Have a lot of women or people more broadly reached out to you since telling your story? Like, has it been validating for them?
2: Yeah, I was so lucky because when I worked on... I had just, like, a very specific vision for this project, and I don't always, like, sometimes I'm just bumbling around in the dark, but this one, I knew how I wanted to do it. I wanted to go to eight cities. I did, like, ten shows in each city. They were at hundred-person venues, so after the show was over, I would go out and talk to the audience, because at the time, I hadn't really announced the title. People didn't 100% know what was going on or what was going to happen in the show, and I felt like I had to be available for people after, and... More often than not, what happened was that multiple people in the audience outed themselves to me as survivors, and I got to say, I'm so sorry that happened to you, which is, like, the right thing to say. You know, we're always, like, trying to figure out what is the right thing to say. Sometimes
1: the simplest. And the right thing to say is just,
2: I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, you don't have to fix it because you can't, and you also don't have to pretend you didn't hear it. So sorry that happened to you. I got to say that to a bunch of people and have a bunch of people say that to me, and it was really healing and amazing. That was actually my favorite part of the process, was getting to interact with so many people that way. And I also used the special to donate a bunch of money to RAIN, the largest anti-sexual violence organization. And I got to go to their call center and see the people that take the calls, that field the calls, and talk people through how to get services and give support. And those were my two favorite parts, going to the call center and talking to people afterwards.
1: One of the things I noticed was that you had a joke about being fearful of men. Honestly, the biggest effect is that I'm just sort of afraid of men. You know, and I noticed there's
2: a bunch of dudes here tonight and I want to say, I really appreciate like your open body posture and like your welcoming faces. Do you know how much that matters when somebody's up here telling this story? Like, do you know how much that matters to me? It really matters a a whole fucking ton. It does. Because sometimes if you say, I'm sort of afraid of men, then one guy will go like, wait a minute! And then, whoops, sketch 22, I'm scared of you.
1: (laughs) Because you've been very scary. It was very funny the way you played it out. And you did it in the way where most of the men in the room, at least the decent men in the room, wouldn't have been back on their heels. You made them part of the joke.
2: I do think that's a lot of what comedy is, is pointing at systems of power in a critical way. Otherwise, it's propaganda. There's a difference between... Criticism and propaganda, and comedy is is on the criticism side. What we're doing, all comics, is trying to be light about something we feel very passionately about, and I think that that's true for the audience too. That there are so many things in life that feel scary and big, and that we want to be able to see a path through that. It just isn't always as easy to win hearts and minds, and also just to say to people's face.
1: So start looking in the right place. With
2: LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: So that's a good segue to a lot of the people listening. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think a lot of them are women. Hello. There is not a lot of research, but there's some research on women using humor. In our everyday lives, when we're navigating something that feels yucky, when someone says something to us that we just wish we could reach out and give them a little punch, when you're on the receiving end of all the ugly messages that we sometimes get as women. First of all, have you done that in your own life where you're using your humor for you in the moment? And then I guess the second thing, do you have any advice for how women would go about that, given this is what you do for a living and you do it really well?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, I'll say there is like a dominance and submission thing going on. The person that I wish I could cite this study or this information, but I will say that the people who laugh the most are women. And the people who do the most creating of laughter are men, not just on stage. And I'm not talking about, like, who has a special on whatever platform. Uh, I totally understand. I'm talking about, like, actually there is statistical information. And that is because even in primates, baring your teeth and showing a smile can be an act of submission. And then the other person gets to talk. They get to control the situation, you're just responding. Of course it makes sense in our larger world that women are less comfortable using humor. Also, humor tends to require that you have one specific opinion about an event and that you're going to stand by that, which is also something not women are not taught. So yes, we are not in comedy for a reason. We are underrepresented there statistically because we are underrepresented in this skill set. And I guess in terms of how to use it in your day-to-day life, You know, this is actually a really interesting question because I'm going to say something that might surprise you, which is even though I think we use it less effectively professionally or less frequently professionally, I don't mean effectively like that women aren't as funny. I mean, we have a much larger barrier to overcome. It is harder for us to get there because of how we're cultured. I think that in the workplace... We tend to joke around about things that we are serious about when we are scared. And I would love to encourage women to say how they really feel. Because especially in a situation where you're being put in an uncomfortable position or where you, you know, I I think of harassment, something like that. A lot of times our safety is really on the line and sometimes it isn't. Whoever's listening, you would know that better than me, which of those situations you're in. And I want you to protect your safety above all else. But if this is a situation where you could just say it, but it feels really hard, that might be worth working
1: on. Yeah, that's such good, thoughtful advice that I do think a lot of times when we do use humor, like in the workplace or in a difficult or awkward situation, there is actually something else we want to say.
2: I mean, it makes sense, too, because I mean, literally, we are afraid of being physically hurt. That is the root of that thing. We don't want to be assaulted in some way. Also, we don't want to be pushed out of our jobs. You know, so sometimes edging into our feelings is the best we can do. And so I just want to acknowledge that. That's what I'm saying about safety. But even acknowledging that, I think we could move closer. I think we could all uh, lean in the direction of saying what we really mean.
1: Lauren and Cameron definitely made me laugh, but they also gave me a lot to think about. I was struck by just how complicated humor can be for women. It's not something we're taught to use the same way that men are. But when wielded correctly and confidently, it can be a powerful tool. And Lauren and Cameron are great examples of what that can look like. That's it for today's episode of Tilted. Before we sign off, just a quick reminder to leave us a voicemail at 855-4TILTED. That's 855 484 5833 with your ideas for making the world a little less tilted in 2021. We can't wait to hear what you have planned, and we might even feature your idea in a future episode. You can subscribe to Tilted on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins, and special thanks to Ali Bohr, Chelsea Paul, kate urban madison long and nicole roman from the lean in team and caitlin thompson ireland meacham jacob kramer duffield and matt noble at audiation i'm your host rachel thomas and i'll join you next time on tilted
0: audiation